Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, welcome to Resolve Riffs. Today we've got none other than Eric Crittenden from Standpoint Funds. So uh, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Eric, you're in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, Eric is an an old hat on the um, uh, trend-following circuit. Uh, Eric, when did you come into this business and maybe share a little bit of your trajectory? Sure. Um, Yeah, look at the gray hair. Each time I do these podcasts, I look older and older. Um, So I entered the industry right around the time long-term capital management was blowing up back in 1998. So that was kind of my initiation into the industry. My story is kind of similar to uh, to yours, Adam. Um, I've worked in you know different aspects of the industry. I've, I've worked for advisors. I've been a clerk. I've um, I've been an accountant. I've been a portfolio manager. Um, I've worked for family offices. I've started hedge funds. I've worked for hedge funds. So I, I feel like I've, with the exception of working on Wall Street, like in investment banking, I've, I've seen a lot of how the microstructure works and the guts of the business and felt the pain, experienced the euphoria and been around the block a few times. So that's a grind, man. Like go, that's a lot of roles to play, right? Like accounting and back office. And, you know, it's it's obviously just been an a, enormous a source of frustration, any sort of attempted at diversification, especially trend until like literally the last eight or nine months has been trying um, over the last decade or so. What has helped you to maintain your energy and enthusiasm for this for this thankless job? 
You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Um, my enthusiasm, I, I guess, you know, the answer that pops into my head is I'm, I'm just not qualified to do anything else in life. I, um, <laughs> I started off in college studying meteorology and, and, and public health um, and eventually stumbled upon um, an economics class and just fell in love with um, the concept of dynamic systems and moved on to finance and then computer science. And I started sprouting gray hair, you know, in, in the late nineties and thought, you know, it's time to get out of college and, and go into the real world. So I did that. I don't know. I love this. I love this job. Uh, I like the crushing responsibility of managing other people's money. I'm, I'm weird like that. Um, I can't picture myself doing anything else. And I, and we'll probably get into this, you know, during the podcast. I think a lot of the thankless nature of the role is our own fault, and there are solutions to it. So I have definitely felt um, that way over the years, uh, just how fickle allocators are and, and certain clients and whatnot. But I, I'm optimistic that there's a solution to 80% of that phenomenon. And that's, uh, that's a big part of the reason that I started Standpoint with my partners and I'm enthusiastic about the next 20 years. So I want to I make sure that we cover the journey that got you to the thinking that you currently espouse and, the, and that informs the strategies, the way you implement them at, at Standpoint. Um, because I, I think you're right. I think we have followed in some ways an interestingly parallel um, trajectory. And I think I've had some of um, the shared experiences. Um, and, and part of that for me has always been starting out, notwithstanding some sort of early career, thinking more traditionally about an equity focus and being overconfident about my ability to, to identify nascent trends and, and macroeconomic phenomenon and, and do aggressive stock picking. When I moved away from that, I really began to prioritize diversification as kind of the primary objective. And then how can we layer on other types of risk management and other types of premia? But over time, I've realized that it's not all about creating the most efficient portfolio, that there are other drivers in the decision-making process for investors. So I'd love to hear how you progressed through that journey. Did you start with that desire to really create the most efficient portfolio and then and then evolve towards acknowledging the psychological realities? Or did you, did you realize those psych- psychological realities right up front and it's been a struggle to sort of create products that we're able to meet in the middle there? Well, I wish I could say it was the latter, but the truth is I got to age 48 um, doing everything wrong with respect to, you know, dealing with clients and, and marketing. So um, like most quantitative systematic oriented managers, I had a huge ego coming out of college and thought I had it all figured out. And um, it's just a, it's just a math problem. It's math and discipline. And um, if I show people, uh, something that's superior to what they're already doing. They'll make the switch over and we'll all hold hands and sing and make money and I'll have my own private island and all of those things, right? Wrong, wrong, and wrong, obviously. Um, I remember a piece of advice I got from Tom Basso way back in 1999 about this. And he, he, he asked me, you know, what's the most important thing in this in this business? You know, what's the most important attribute or characteristic? 
And I don't remember what my answer was, but he said, no, that's not true. It's psychology. It's, it's your psychology and it's your client's psychology. And it's where those things overlap. And, and I laughed and thought, no way, come on. It's, uh, it's all about the math. It's all about the formulas and the discipline. And I was absolutely dead wrong. So it took a lot of me getting kicked in the face, um, working really hard uh, for long periods of time, um, learning lessons and getting to age 48 before I realized that, you know, my life can be a lot easier uh, I can be a lot more successful and everyone around me. If I stop preaching at my clients and I start listening to them and I start delivering something that is both what they want and need at the same time, not just what they want. That's a recipe for failure. We all know that. Uh, and not just what they need, but don't want. That's also a recipe for failure. And that's just a hard hurdle to get over. And it's one of those things where I wish I was smart enough to have figured that out early on. I wasn't. I don't know too many people who were because I, I would have been paying attention, but we're where we're at now. And um, I think there's lots of opportunities to cover both of those. You can deliver what people both want and need at the same time. Uh, so that's what we intend to do. So, so what, what, what do they need? Us? Hold on. I want to make sure we cover this. And you may be going here too, Rodrigo, but I want to make sure we, 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 mm-hmm. we get it. So what do they need but but not want? Um, so (laughs) it's the same stuff you guys have been talking about for years. It's the extreme diversification. It's a dispersion of, of, of opportunities. Um, it's things that are going to underperform the stock market when it's soaring. Um, it's all the stuff that you've, um, your research has shown it's, is people need effective diversification. They need the discipline to rebalance into that at the right time. Um, but they don't want it. They don't want it. Uh, in theory, they want it. On paper, they want it. In real life, day to day, month to month, quarter to quarter, what you'll find is that the vast majority of people don't want it. Maybe an individual wants it, but once you go up the chain of command to the investment committee and to the board and then to the shareholders, it is impossible to get everybody on the same page and to get them all to have the courage to do what you think is the right thing uh, at that moment in time. And uh, I've seen so many people, there's a few firms out there that have been successful. Um, and a lot of us kind of theorize that, that they know something that we don't, that they're able to um, command that respect or, or, you know, kind of get people on board. I strongly suspect that they're doing something very different than convincing all those people to do something that they don't want to do. And what would that be? I don't know. Um, I, one common denominator I see is that if you look under the hood at where their assets are, well, there's a few common denominators. One of them is that the assets gravitate towards relatively low volatility products um, and also to products that if you dig deep enough, they're very multi-strat in nature or multi-asset in nature and global in nature. So the idea there is um, it may be harder to raise money for boring, multi-asset, kind of multi-strategy, all-weather type products. Um, But it's a lot harder to get fired. And if you're not getting fired, it means you can actually help clients. You can can offer them something they can actually stick with and and stick around for the long-term benefits. So tell me a little bit about the journey to get there. So what were you delivering that you knew was right, but they didn't want? that and, and, and how you evolved into what you're doing today? Um, 
cut cut me off if I go on too long here. Uh, I'm going to start about you today, baby. Yeah, I want to start. Really, Dude, this will be on. like a mutual catharsis, man. You just you just yeah, let it all right. out. Yeah. Um, I worked for a really large family office in Kansas back in the uh, in the late 90s. And um, I thought they hired me because I um, I had a pretty good understanding of options pricing theory and uh, you know, I was a decent programmer and uh, really good at finance and investments. Like I had the background um, and they were setting up a family office that um, wanted to be relatively sophisticated. And um, in the interviewing process, I thought this is a perfect fit. This, this family has a tremendous sum of money and um, they got rich fast and they want to diversify and, and, and you know, keep this money long term. Turns out I couldn't have been more wrong. What they wanted was a way to figure out, you know, and this was uh, the third quarter of 99. What they wanted was to figure out how I could help them get more leverage than the two to one leverage they already had concentrated in technology mm-hmm. stocks. So uh, they were interested in writing puts and using the proceeds to buy calls and to, um, you know, make more money. So I, you know, coming out of college, I'm a pretty risk averse guy. Um, I care about the compounded return. I understand uh, and have a deep respect for risks that aren't easy to see before they happen. You know, the kind of elevator down, escalator up type risks. And it was real easy for me to model out the NASDAQ and say, you know, one down quarter and you guys could be negative equity at that level of leverage. You know, just just the empirical data shows you multiple instances where you guys would be negative equity. And so I thought, you know, I will be able to convince them to, you know, diversify into, you know, gold and bonds and um, other asset classes. Um, You set up some trusts, you know, a blind trust and and put, you know, a reasonable investment policy together. Like that's that's what I wanted to do. No, Uh, (laughs) no interest. So uh, to make a long story short, you know, we butted heads forever and ever. uh, And I got asked to, to, to leave. Um, They continued doing what they were doing. And you all know what happened to, to the NASDAQ um, after that. So I ended up in Phoenix, um, I started a hedge fund uh, here. It was called Black Star Funds. You probably came across a paper. Oh, I remember your your yeah, early papers on yeah. trend following stocks were formative. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote that paper and, and and several others that never got any coverage that I thought were much more powerful than that particular paper. Um, that paper was really just on my downtime. You know, just putting stuff together. I'm like, Hey, I did this research. I'll write this paper. Well, I what did I miss? What are, what are the other themes that you covered that um, I got to go back and review? One was called the non-random behavior of declining stock prices. And this, this one, it was a one page paper. And I really felt that this one was super powerful because essentially what I did is I collected the data on every stock that ever traded in the U S from 89 to I think it was 2009, maybe. Um, so all and, and adjusted it for dividends, divestitures, uh, mergers, all those things, and had all the the bankrupt stocks in there and whatnot. And then I um, I calculated their annual calendar year returns for each stock. So if a stock had been in there for ten years, it had ten returns. And then I dumped them all into a database, and then I plotted it as a like a cumulative distribution. 
and fully expected to see that log normal distribution that I was taught in business school, right? You got the big right tail. It's got Cisco and Intel and Microsoft in there. Um, and then you've got the mode, right? And then you got this little left tail, which is, you know, Enron's and some other companies that went bankrupt, right? So, and then I created the log normal distribution just using a, a random number generator. Um, and it lined up perfectly. I mean, it was, you couldn't tell the difference until you got to the left tail. Now, what do you think we saw over on the left tail? The academic distribution just had this tiny, tiny little tiny bump. Little tail. Right. Yeah. And then the real life had this enormous giant tail of massive, massive failure. So that was illuminating to me because I thought, well, that's, that's where academics actually are inconsistent with reality. So if you're a believer in alpha, if you're a believer in, um, you know, any kind of excess returns, you know, I've just identified to myself at the time uh, what that likely source is. It's either shorting those stocks, which is not the truth, that that's not what it ended up being, or simply avoiding them, which was closer to the truth. Now, there's more to it, right? Transaction costs, taxes, fees, operational headache, lo- locating shares, you know, all the, the financial engineering that goes into synthetically setting it up with a futures contract or whatever. But that was interesting to me. And I don't think a single person ever contacted me about that paper. They all love the trend following on stocks paper. So, so is does that line up with was it Bessem, Bessem Bender's paper on the capitalist distribution? Is there, do those theses line up, do you think? Uh, I suspect so. I think a lot of people read what I wrote and walked away saying oh, that's an argument for indexation. Uh, and a lot, and you know, maybe 60% of people said that's an argument for indexation. And the other 40% said that's an argument for active management and avoiding <laughs> indexation. And I was perplexed as to why at the time, even though I actually kind of agree that it's an argument for indexation, at least on one level. Yeah, um, yeah Bassam Binder, I think he's a professor here at Arizona State University or one of those guys that contacted us is. Um, I can't remember. I remember reading his paper. I can't remember if it was um, if it corresponded with our findings or not. That was a long time ago. Okay, so you have the the Black Star paper set you down a path of trend following on equities, and what happens then? Well, let me. Uh, I want to. I want to take a detour here and go back to college and just share with you guys a story. And I, I think you guys will like this. So, when I was in college, after I had switched to finance, I was in a class. I don't remember if it was investments or futures and options, but in one of the classes, the, there was a project where we had to write the code ourselves to calculate the efficient frontier. Um, so it was up to us to go collect data on asset classes and pick the start date, pick the end date, and then write the code and all the linear algebra and all that other stuff to come up with the efficient frontier. What programming language were you using at that time? So like, that Fortran? was Fortran or Pascal, maybe? Pascal. Pas- yeah. 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 So, um, I, um, I, I was in Kansas and I love the people in Kansas, but it is the most boring place in America. Uh, so there's nothing to do. So I started a club on my campus uh, called the students of finance club. And, um, we just brought together people that worked at commodity trading firms. There's a lot of commodity trading going on in Wichita, Kansas, I mean, Coke industries is there. So I had a bunch of people that, you know, PhDs from foreign countries, they got recruited to America and they ended up in Kansas and they're just bored out of their minds. Um, people that worked on hedging desks, people that worked at Cargill, um, corporate farming syndicates, um, you know, the whole gamut of anyone who was trading uh, commodities, futures contracts, swaps, forwards, whatever, and any 
you know, eventually found us. And there was this little clique of people that I would hang out with. And, um, you know, we would try to pass the time living in Kansas, dodge tornadoes and, and have fun with our Fortran Pascal. And I think VBA came along at some point in there too. So, and we had a copy of trade station, um, had a couple mm-hmm. of buddies that were decent hackers. So I had like Bloomberg, don't tell Bloomberg. Um, so we had, so long story short, we had all the data we could ever want. Uh, and we had some reasonably effective programming um, environments to, to, to crunch this data. So I took that project seriously. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go build the efficient frontier. I'm going to do this my way. So I collected data on everything. And I put it all in there and I wrote the code with the help of some friends. And I came up with this just amazing asset allocation, static asset allocation strategy that had a sharp ratio of one, which is enormous, right? That's just enormous. And I think the start date was sometime in the 60s or early 70s. I was going to ask when did it start? Yeah. 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 And that, so this would have been 1997 or 96 ish when I was doing this project, right? Mm-hmm. So I turn it in and the teacher says, um, <laughs> what did you do here? And I said, well, what do you mean? I did the assignment. And he's like, uh, I don't understand what some of this stuff is. And he starts picking through it. And one of them, one of the indexes in there was like the, it was like the uh, Kaleon CTA index um, or the Stark 300. It was one of those old CTA indexes from a long, and there was like a 40% allocation to this index. Right. And uh, I remember saying, well, I didn't know the difference, right? I was a, I was a newbie at the time. I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know the difference between that and other things. And he said, no, get rid of that. Like nobody invests in those things. That's like market timing or something like that. Uh, just use stocks and bonds and maybe real estate. I'm like, okay. So I kicked everything out. I kicked out all the alternatives and the trend component. And the deterioration was amazing. Yeah, you're looking at a sharp ratio of like 0.45, 0.5. Yeah, Yeah, it was a 0.4. It was between 0.4 and 0.45, right? But here's the thing, right? It became very sensitive to shitty periods of time, like the 1970s. Uh, You had lost decades um, because nothing stands up during that period of time. uh, Except for, yeah, it it may have me kick out gold and kick me all kinds of stuff. So um, I, I went back to him and I said, no, man, you're doing this wrong. Like this stuff clearly makes a huge difference. And his ambivalence and lack of interest in it stuck with me forever. I thought, no, I'm going to talk some sense to this guy. This is finance. This is investing, right? Like I, I, even back then I understood kind of the path traveled risk of a retirement plan and how, you know, you can't just bet it all on one or two asset classes. I mean, you can, um, but there's no reason to do that if the other ones add a lot of value. Right. And they solve problems uh, and he just no interest. So I started whining to my other students and none of them had an interest. They're like, dude, just shut up. Let's get your grade. Let's move on. You know, there's parties tonight. Like it stuck with me forever. Just how much of a difference it made by kicking out these alternative risk premium. Um, and now I'm 48. I was probably 24 at the time. Um, I've never forgotten that. So I tell the story every chance I get. Sorry. So no, that's anyways, a great story. What's interesting- is that it is time dependent, right? And I'm sure that during the 70s and 80s, having that CTA in there was huge, while equities and bonds had basically a zero sharp ratio for decade, for a, at least a decade there in real terms, based on our research. I, what's interesting about the last decade is that a traditional 60-40 portfolio has a sharp at two probably over the last 10 years, not notwithstanding 2020. 
And adding the CTA during that period has probably got brought down that sharp ratio lower, but nonetheless, still high. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But no, yeah. you're right. You're right. And my rebuttal or the what I would point out is that decade over decade, the portfolio that has plenty of trend in it basically has the same sharp ratio and the same descriptive st- statistics, regardless of what kind of market environment you're going into. It doesn't change very much. It's very stable. But if you say, no, get rid of that stuff, just give me stocks and bonds, you're all over the place. Right. You're an absolute hero of the last 10 years. That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, but you're a zero in the preceding 10 years. And in the 70s, you're guaranteed out of business. You know, having a you, negative you take away rate of consistency and you give, you give uh, exposure to luck. Yes. And if, if everybody's got luck on their side and you have given consistency, then you're going to get fired. Well, well, that, the other interesting the dimension to this is the either-or nature of the problem, which is contrived, right? I mean, and I mean, obviously, what you're doing now is not—it's a one plus one equals three type solution, right? And we we do something similar in several of our of our products, but it's this idea—it's the sum to one idea, right? Like I'm sure when you were creating your efficient frontier you had that sum to one constraint, no shorting, right? And if you if you use the sum to one constraint, when you if you in order to add to alternatives, you gotta take away from stocks and bonds, right? And in reality, certainly for institutions, and if you allocate to the right kinds of products, even if you're not an institution, if you're just a regular retail investor, it's not an either or, it's an and, right? Like you can have your cake, oh which is whatever it is, the 60, hey 40. Sorry, oh my I'm God. Late. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Eric, meet Mike. Mike um, how are you? Good, Eric. You Mike, can have the 60, 40 Mike, allocation. Mike came on with a aviator glasses and a camo <laughs> shirt of some sort. I don't even know That's what right. to say. Yeah. All right. Sorry. It's like someone had a Top Gun. Um, <laughs> but anyways, you can have the full allocation to, in your case, a full stock, like a hundred percent allocation to global equities. And then layer on the trend following, right? And you know, in our case, you can have a hundred percent or even like two hundred percent allocation to a global diversified all weather portfolio, and then layer on trend following and a few other risk premia, right? It's this portable alpha perspective, which is just not what anyone ever talks about. But of course, that is that is the answer. It's not the either or, it's the and. Yeah, we live in a linear zero-sum uh, world. <clears throat> um, and at the risk of pissing off some of my peers in the industry, I'll call out the CTA industry a little bit. So you guys know this. When you're running a global trend program or any program that uses futures contracts, you only need about 10% of the money under management to control yeah. all those futures contracts. The other 90% of the money is just sitting there, Right. So, and most macro managers are going to invest that either in a laddered bond portfolio or in T-bills, but there's no rule or law that says you have to do that. You're completely free to go invest in other appropriate assets if you want to. So in that context, Adam, what you were just saying is that, yeah, you can get uh, three products for the price of one. Uh, And if you trust your manager to not take too much risk, the efficiencies um, available from from that approach are tremendous. So, but most people don't think that way right now, um, and I think a lot of that's our own fault. 
You know, I think that in our industry, in the alternative investment industry, CTAs, risk parity, we've shot ourselves in the both feet so many times over the years. Um, there's just easier ways, I think, to get the point across. Can, can I push back on that a little bit? Isn't, sure. isn't that a little bit of a function of proliferation of ETFs and certain, you know, U.S. equities as an example, dominating performance and taking the spotlight off of diversity? Yeah, and that's an element, um, certainly. Yeah, over the last 10 years. Yeah. yeah. In, in the preceding the 10 decade, years, it yeah. was basically the opposite. But yeah. yeah, I completely agree with that. So let's let's continue on the journey here. So you you're you you see this value in the CTA. It marked your journey, and you've just moved on from the family office. What do you do after that? So started Black Star Funds. Um, that was a great way to learn about um, the inefficiencies of dealing with hedge fund investors and. Um, family offices and allocators and whatnot, and really tried hard, uh, built some nice long, short equity programs. Um, Mike, I, we were talking about the paper that I wrote a long time ago called does trend falling work on stocks. Oh yeah. That, that's a classic, that black star paper. Yeah. 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 So that was basically the strategy. Um, and that strategy it worked exactly as, as I expected it to. And it's still alive today at a different firm. I don't work there anymore, but um, it's their strategy now. Uh, loved that strategy. Uh, we just could never raise meaningful money for it. Um, not sure why. Uh, I think a lot of it is that it tends to, that program underperforms after a sell-off during a recovery. And that's when all eyes are on the market and everyone's hypersensitive and and looking to make that money back real quick. So it's just that that style, even though I think it works and I think it collects a certain risk premium in the marketplace, it happens to be almost 100% misaligned with the cognitive psychology of investors, meaning that you know they're terribly fearful when you're leveraged up and making money and they don't like it and, and you're making their life miserable. And then they're terribly greedy and want to make that money back fast after a drawdown and you just delevered and went into uh, armadillo mode and they want you to be taking risk. That was my experience with that program, which is why I don't, um, I don't think it's a good way to do business with people because it's so uh, misaligned with the psychology of investors. So it's probably worth, we, we actually talked about this a little earlier too, Mike, and we kind of skipped over what the actual theme of the paper is. So, sure. um, for those who haven't read it, and keep in mind, it's like a what now, 20-year-old paper, 15-year-old paper? So, 2007, uh, was it? Six, yeah. Six. So yeah. Um, maybe just go into the general theme of the paper so that at least we can put a pin in that. So at the time, I was running a fund of funds uh, at a firm called Blackstar, and um, I was trying to find systematic equity managers. We found all the CTAs that we wanted to allocate to. Um, we were trying to find systematic equity managers that were trend following in nature and just couldn't find any. Just couldn't. We scanned the globe and uh, there were a couple that claimed to, but when you looked under the hood, they were doing stuff that I wasn't comfortable with. It, w- it wasn't, you know, rules-based trend following. So, uh, and they all told me it doesn't work. You know, trend following doesn't work on stocks. It only works on futures. And I thought that is a really bad answer, guys. Um, that makes me question the, the whole trend following approach. Um so I said, all right, well, after a while, I said, I'll just build it myself and find out who's right and who's wrong. So I went and built a really simple, you know, if a stock hits an all-time high, you buy it, you put, put the stop loss at 10 ATRs, calibrate your risk to be, um, I think it was 20% across the whole portfolio. So you divide that by the number of open positions, 
super simple. You know, all everything I do has at most three three variables. Um, back tested it, you know, included all the delisted stocks, uh, used liquidity filters, uh, equal risk weight of the positions. Uh, went back to uh, early 1970s. Worked great. I mean, the back test is beautiful, right? So I thought, well, somebody's wrong. It's either me or them. So eventually became confident enough in it to actually launch a product around it. And I ran that product from 2005 until I left my previous firm in 2018. Uh, and it did exactly what I expected it to. So I thought that that was... Uh, uh, so to this day, I don't understand why people feel that trend following doesn't work on stocks. It, it appeared to, to me, you know, higher returns, lower drawdowns, lower volatility. There's more work involved, you know, a lot of corporate actions and you need a portfolio margin account. You have to use leverage at times, um, but well within so the repertoire. So it's not as tax efficient, tax efficient, sorry, uh, margin efficient, right? Because you actually have to do a full bore on. No. Um, so that was a long only version in a long, short context, I would use index futures to get the short exposure to avoid uh, paying the, the managing the borrowing cost and holding those shares is an absolute nightmare because the borrowing yeah. cost could be 4% one day and 90% a week later. Yep. Um, and they rip those shares away from you when the market, when the stock really starts going down as no, no, that's, yeah. I learned real quick to avoid that, like the plague. So, but you can do it pretty easily. Uh, you can financially engineer um, a very effective hedge using index futures and just lean on that. Right. Okay. So the, um, I think what's interesting about this, because I think most people think about trend following in the context of moving averages or time series momentum, but um, your definition I found really intuitive and it works, I think, really well for equities. Um, I don't think it works so well for um for futures, certainly not for commodity futures, but um, I like it because it was it was largely parameterless in terms of the um, selection criteria, right? There were parameters on your risk management and on the portfolio formation, but it was just simply had it hit an all time high, right? Like I, I think that was a really intuitive and and parsimonious way to define whether something is in a positive trend or in a negative trend, right? I guess a negative trend is a little tough because. Um, you know, hitting an all-time low. Is, is that how you define it? Was it an all-time low or 52-week low? Or how did how did you specify it on the... Well, well you didn't have to do that. You were just hedging with futures. So you didn't yeah. actually do the short side, right? So with, with the futures, because if you use the certain um, mixture of futures contracts, you essentially get the coverage of the Russell 3000. Totally, and if you're, yeah. So if you're, if you're not long a position, synthetically, you're net short. Mm -hmm. And you're not paying the borrowing cost, even though it, to some degree it would be showing up in the in the uh, futures contract. Um, gotcha. But I, I I I will take issue though with your statement that you don't think it works on futures. I think it works better on futures, in particular commodity futures. I think that trend following. Um, I do not get what people are talking about when they say trend following doesn't hasn't it is not working very well. Um, it hasn't worked um, recently. I see that in the track records. Um, I just don't see that in the actual markets themselves. Um, I So I, I guess just to, to clarify, I mean that particular specification of trend. Oh, yeah. Where, would, yeah. All-time highs. You're buying all-time highs. Yeah. But, um, but I will say, though, that it is interesting that you say that because, I mean, certainly if you look at the indices or, you know, relatively naive ensemble strategies for um, – futures trend following 
then the, notwithstanding the recent run, obviously this year has been, well, call it eight or nine months, has been a revival, a renaissance for trend following. But um, say more about why you think the last 10 years has also been reasonable for trend following strategies. It's tough. I don't have total transparency into the returns that roll up into those indexes that everyone can see have gone sideways for 10 years. So if you're looking at the SG trend or Barclay CTA um, or the B top 50, everyone can see that the returns have sucked for 10 years. So you might be wondering why is Eric, you know, insinuating that um, that's not the case. Uh, Yeah, I see it too. Now, a big part of that is the collateral yield from the low interest rates has just taken the you know the five percent tailwind you know off the table. So you know CTAs used to get five six percent on their ninety percent of their money that's just sitting in cash that went away. So obviously, you know if you were making ten, you're now making six or five, but that doesn't explain all of it, right? So there's a little more deterioration in those indexes uh, beyond that. So what I will say is that. Over the years, I've I've talked to a lot of people in the industry, um, a lot of you know PMs and salespeople in the managed futures industry, and they all started giving up right around. I'd say 2013 was kind of a, a cathartic year. Uh, it was a turning point where a lot of people started closing closing their shops down um, and concluding that it doesn't work as well anymore. Um, and things got t- were still tough and up until, like you said, uh, November of last year is when trend following got a bid and, and started working again. And uh, in my discussions with these people, I picked up on, on a reoccurring theme that seemed to be lost on them. A lot of these guys, I would say most of them, were really putting a lot of changes into the programs. Like they, they, they were no longer running simple medium-term or long-term trend following approaches. You know, they were, they were layering in all kinds of new stuff that was interesting that worked really well over, you know, like a three-year window leading up to it. Um, and it was funny to, to watch this happen because I'm very sensitive to the whole, you know, curve fitting, adding new stuff in, parameters. I'm allergic to parameters. Three, three is the max for me. And each additional um, parameter that you add on top of that, in my opinion, cuts the credibility of your system in half each additional parameter. So, and I'm standing on an Island there, um, sort of, but I, I, I stick with that until I die. Hey, von, Neu- von Neumann. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I guess what I'm saying is a lot of people changed what they do between 2013 and 2016, such that even if you look at it and say, yeah, it's a trend following firm. If you look at what's going on in that program, it's meaningfully different from what they were doing from, you know, 1984 to 2012. It's a lot of changes, a lot of changes. So when I implement really simple old school trend following rules, the kind of stuff that you could have done in the 60s where, you know, you're, you're buying a 200-day high um, and you're executing two days after you get the signal and you're risking 1% per trade or whatever. When I model those things out, I do see some deterioration after 2011 when you're using an equal risk approach. But when you use a liquidity weighted approach, I see no deterioration at all. If you leave in, if you leave collateral yield out of the equation, 
So, and you can, there's certain CTAs out there. If you go look at their track record and you remove the collateral yield from it, you look at it and say, you know, these guys haven't missed a beat. They don't look any different than they did you know, two and three decades ago. I'm talking about big firms. So firms that are so big that they have to be trading on a liquidity weighted basis. There's no way they can equal risk weight palladium with the 10 year treasury. That's just impossible. So, and they're so big that, you know, they can't be trading a meaningful amount of canola or rubber or, or even like soybean meal. So if you model it out the way, you know, they have to trade and you keep the, you know, it's medium to long-term trend following, you ignore interest rates. It actually looks pretty good. Um, and I think a lot of people just aren't aware of that. So walk me through this. So um, liquidity weight being waiting by past past 20 day open interest um sure. past 20 day average daily volume what, what is yeah 20 day median open interest it works with volume too though i mean any kind of proxy for liquidity uh, and if you use the median rather than the mean you'll get a relatively stable uh, value through time and so what sort of i guess the contracts that would meet you know some of the major equity contracts, a lot of the treasury contracts, um, the, you know, many of in the energy complex, um, yeah, Brent crude, copper, gas, gold, soybeans, copper. Yeah. yeah. Um, carbon emission credits, you know, I think that's the seventh or eighth largest, uh, market in our portfolio, uh, completely uncorrelated to all other markets has nothing to do with anything. And it's super deep and liquid. And most people have never even heard of it iron ore. Um, there's all kinds of stuff out there going on that no one ever talks about. So where do you trade iron ore? Uh, Cymex, Singapore. So it's not in our portfolio yet. We're considering adding it in. Uh, right. That's one I'm watching. That's really become liquid. Uh, well, everyone's focused on Bitcoin. Um, carbon emission credits are up more than Bitcoin over the last, I think, year and a half or two years. And it's deeply, deeply liquid. And yeah, we, no we we trade those too. Okay. Um. So so say more about you. Sort of you've observed, um, managers sort of um, diversifying away from from core roots in traditional trend following techniques. That never you never found that attractive. Move like uh, incorporating stuff like. Um, carry or seasonality or um, any of the other reasonable anomalies or any other more esoteric methods? I'm so glad you asked that question. Nobody ever asks me that. I have really controversial and strong opinions on this topic, so you might want to put your helmet on. <laughs> um, I have it in my back pocket, uh, so let me just get it out. I think not uh, that kind of helmet, Mike. Uh, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um, trend following. I hate the phrase trend following. I have always hated it. I mean, when I came out of college, I was I was um, setting up arbitrage positions and doing stuff that I felt was really sophisticated. When I first came across the concept of trend following, I thought oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You're you want me to go chase performance? That's something my niece would would do, you know, like Beanie Babies or something like that. I just didn't like it. Um, and it Zero took, IQ trade. Yeah, it it's it took me a long time to 
arrive at the conclusion that trend following as practiced is, um, is really just avoiding trends going against you and, and providing liquidity to the one group of market participants that can afford that are, that are willing and able to pay you a risk premium. And those are hedgers. So one thing I, lo- I love about futures that I, that I don't like about stocks is that the futures markets are really simple. You know, you've got, you, you can basically evaluate who the participants are. You've got commercial hedgers, you've got large speculators and small speculators. And the futures markets are essentially a zero sum game. So for me to make $10,000, somebody else necessarily has to lose $10,000. And it's actually worse than that because the regulators have to get paid, the exchange, the broker, the clearing firm, everyone has to get paid. So technically it's a negative sum game, right? So at first that sounds like bad news. Like why would I want to participate in a negative sum game? Until you realize that um, these markets, the futures markets, the forward markets were created for hedgers to unload unwanted risks, certain risks they don't want to take on their balance sheet. And by doing that, they're essentially either locking in profit margins or input costs, which is very, very similar. It's a close cousin to the phenomenon of insurance. And we know that insurance shouldn't economically, it should not be a free phenomenon. You should pay. Like when you're seeking comfort, you pay. So remember back earlier in this conversation, I was talking about the people that joined my club at Wichita State that worked on hedging desks. I remember a time scratching my head, looking at what they were doing. We, we compared you know, models and whatnot. And I kept looking at what they were doing. And I thought, what is your problem, guys? Like, why are you trying to lose money? Why are you trying to make money? Uh, and it just perplexed me until one day I realized that they're compensated based upon creating negative covariance to the risk on their company's balance sheet. Right? They're not trying to make money in the futures markets. And they can pretty consistently, um, not day to day, but they lose money and they lose a lot of money. They they lose like 150 to 300 basis points a year. Um, But it's in a very counterintuitive way. It's through um, a form of an opportunity cost, like missing out on a big trend in copper because they're naturally already long copper if they're a copper mining company or missing out on a big downtrend in crude oil. Um, So, and then I thought, well, okay, who trades opposite these guys? Because these guys have deep pockets and they can afford to lose money. And in fact, they're, they're compensa- compensated. Uh, the more money they lose, the better off economically the firm is because that loss is negatively correlated with a much bigger position in, on their balance sheet and their core business. And I noticed they love buying weakness and selling strength. And then it kind of clicked in my mind that trend followers are the only people crazy enough to step up and provide them liquidity, right? And most trend followers don't even realize that that's what they're doing. All they are is a weird hybrid market maker at a long-term frequency that's benefiting from kind of a, an inverted form of insurance. So, well, yeah, it's the, uh, the, uh, the concept of willing losers, which I think uh, Chris Schindler takes offense to because they're, they're very willing to, they, they see it as a win. The hedgers is, the hedges they're putting on is as a win to create stability for the organization. So it, yeah, if you're going to make excess profits in a zero-sum game, there has to be a structural reason why you expect to get paid for that. 
And that totally makes sense to us as well. I read up. Well, there's, there's externalities to the market. Right? Yes. So the, the market is a zero-sum game, but there is externalities to the players in the market that provide for them being willing to pay some excess return to somebody to take that risk from them. Yeah. Right. And their 3% loss, which is totally suitable for them, can be your 15% gain if you're using economic leverage. Yeah. I read a paper this, once. Let me let me tell you about the. Yeah, I think you ahead, guys please, like please this. Do. So, I read a paper once. Um, I can't remember where I found this, but they were talking about sources of corporate gains. Oh yeah, that's what it was. So, if you hedged, and I think this was uh, manufacturing companies, um, might have been aircraft. If you hedged, your borrowing costs were so much lower. Like the, the the yields you had to pay to bond investors were so much lower than if you didn't hedge, such that you could lose an extra hundred basis points a year on your whole hedging book, and you would make that back and then some on the debt side of the business, right? So here's another thing that no one understands, and it's like, why are they willing to do this? Well, it's because it actually lowers their borrowing costs. You know, another source of return that's not well understood, well, and 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 increases their multiple. Right. Yeah. If your if your stock if if your company is able to smooth its earnings through this process and have more consistent earnings, you're going to get a higher multiple. I would think. Yeah. All no, no. Well, I, I literally on point. I just went off a website that explicitly looks for consistency in earnings to choose their the the high yielding mm-hmm. high dividend stocks. So that is a a variable that analysts are looking for to provide to the public. It's also a nice, a nice little narrative to sell to, right? So yeah. I, I can see it's that explicitly the in the quality factor literature and it's yeah, well, well documented in the uh, weighted average cost of capital, the variable, the variability of earnings is definitely a major explanatory variable. Everybody's um, gaming everybody. I'll give you another so couple you, of examples. Um, sure. Yeah. Real quick. So, one, my grandfather was a wheat farmer. The other one was a hog farmer. And I promise you, they loved losing money on their hedges. They loved it because it meant that the farm was hitting triples. And also, when I ran a long short equity program, um, the best days were when I was just getting killed on the hedge because it meant that the core portfolios going up, right? Was I... Was I fretting over how much I was losing on the hedge? Well, sometimes I probably was, but net net, you want to lose money on the hedge. So I love hedgers. Um, it's not an ad- adversarial relationship. I think medium and long-term trend followers provide liquidity to hedgers and collect a sustainable risk premium, and they don't even realize it. That's mm-hmm. why I'm comfortable doing it. It's a theory, and you can't prove it because it's all it's all uh, circumstantial because the markets are anonymous, but I think that's why it persists and why it's sustainable. Yeah, well, they're taking risk off the table and you are taking risk and directional risk in order to be able to capture that, right? So it makes sense that you're going to get profit from that. Why should you also get convexity? You know, that has to do with... Should, you know, I don't know that should's the the right word. It just turns out that's the way it is. Um, I think that in order for this to, I'm not sure if it's causal, but the reason it's so misunderstood and no one ever talks about it is the nature of the returns is through 
the opportunity cost of missing out on these big trends. I mean, it's not a slow and steady, like we're picking up. It's not like true insurance where you're underwriting a risk premium and you're getting those payments every single month, right? It needs to be more complicated and messy and indirect than that. And, you know, you guys have run trend falling programs. I'm sure you know that in any given five-year window, 80% of your gains comes from some comes small all minority. Yeah. yeah, all from one sector, right? Mm-hmm. And then that sector becomes a dog for 10 years and two other sectors are responsible for 90% of your gains. So, um, but that's how you get people to part with lots of value and not hate you for it and not regret it. It's, it's in the form of an opportunity cost. They didn't have to write you a check. It's they missed out on the huge move in copper because they wanted the certainty of cash flows. And that's mm-hmm. okay to them. In fact, they're better off for having done that. Yeah, it's just a, it's counterintuitive to think that to position trend following as both selling insurance and expecting positive skew, right? Like that is, that, that certainly is a, uh, theoretically that's, that's more of a stretch, right? Empirically, we, we do observe over timeframes that are meaningful to intermediate and longer term trend followers, a positive skew. And so if we're collecting an insurance premium, then that's not the profile that you would expect, right? Well, so, Adam, that's, that's why I was very careful with my words. I said a counterintuitive inverted form of, of insurance, I think was my exact wording. So yes, I agree. Enough, but I'm not, I'm not trying to pin you down. I'm just, but I, I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable component um, that explains a good chunk of, may explain a good chunk of the returns. But you did sort of dance around. I don't know if that's for our benefit or just because um, you kind of got sidetracked. But uh, my original question was, so, okay, I, I understand why you love trend following. Seems to me that there are other reasonable risk premia. Like one of them that seems reasonably obvious is people naturally don't want to own negatively skewed markets. Right, and so if you're willing to step in and buy buy negative skew, then that is a reason to earn a risk premium, and we certainly observe that. It's not obvious how to specify skew, but over a wide ensemble of of specifications, there's definitely a, a premium there. Carry obviously has a very direct risk premium. So, so what is it about those premia that you are less enthused about? That's a great question. Um, I want to share with you a couple observations. How to frame this. So I, for a long time, I've thought that the risk, if you're collecting a risk premium, you've got to be on the wrong side of skew, right? I never bought this argument that you want to buy right skewed stuff. And I always thought to myself, well, no, then you're, you're a premium payer at that point, right? Which seemed inconsistent with the trend following narrative that I was buying into, right? So I did this analysis and I said, okay, I understand that when you get the signal to go long soybeans, that at that moment in time, the skew is to the right. But what happens after you're in the trade? Well, I analyzed thousands and thousands of simulated trades historically. And after you're in the trade, the skew flips and you're actually taking negative skew uh, on average after that. Doesn't mean your PNL is left skewed because you're using right. stop losses. But you definitely are primarily experiencing neg- negative skew in the P&L of your individual trades. But the stop losses themselves are mimicking a long option position, right? So the the combination of of the the trend position and the stop loss mimics 
a hedge option position. So this is why I, 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 I struggle with sort of thinking about trend following as insuring or offsetting. I mean, I, I, I kind of buy what you're saying and, 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 I, and I totally buy that you can have a, a large number of negatively skewed trades that in aggregate, for example, end up having positive positive skew, right? Because of the different conditionalities and the diversification across the different trades at different times, right? But um, I'm, so are, are, you con- are you persuaded that this explains that as well? Well, I don't know if persuaded. Um, I, I'm persuaded that it's a, a reasonable way to source risk premia in markets that aren't redundant with stocks and bonds. Beyond that, the rest is is all theory. It's all theory, uh, and some of it's very important to me because I have to sleep at night too. Uh, I will tell you that what you said is true. The stop loss is essentially, uh, now you're bringing in reinsurance, like you're laying it off onto someone else beyond a certain point, um, which makes sense. You're still underwriting risk. You're still taking a certain amount of left skew. But when you get to a certain point, you say that enough's enough. I'm going to hand it off to someone else and take a loss, right? And they're stepping into something that's got even more left skew. So you could think of it in, in a reinsurance context. I don't know if that helps, but I, I, I can. I've framed it that way in my mind before. Um, no, it's fine, and I, we don't need to. We don't need to dwell there. But I, I, I do want to get to stuff like alter, the other potential alternative risk premia within futures, stuff like seasonality or. Um, um, carry, carry, for carry. example. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I've disentangled and, um, you know, essentially, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Were you uh, disaggregated? Yeah. Disaggregated, decompose all the trend following trades from all the markets going back into the 1960s and tried to figure out how much of it came from actual price appreciation and how much of it came from term structure. And, um, for, medium-term trend-following programs, about 35 to 40% of the returns come from the term structure component. And for long-term, it's just over 50% of the returns actually came from the term structure component. Mm -hmm. So the carry um, is a big part of that, meaning that if a market is generally in backwardation or if it just goes into a heavy backwardation, the way that we're transforming those different contracts into a signal is reflecting that backwardation as an uptrend, yeah. Right. So, and then if you if you keep rolling it, and you have the benefit of you know selling high and buying low over and over and over again. Um, you make a lot of money. So, I, w- I would argue that a trend following program that's looking at the, the futures markets on a total return basis is, to a large degree, unknowingly factoring the carry into the signal generation process. So if you have a negative trend but positive carry, you're taking that into it. So that's what you mean by total return basis. You're looking at both things before you make a trend shift, whether long or short. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's the whole collapsing the parameters away and consolidating it into an actual signal that's meaningful. Uh, The peso during the tequila crisis back in the 90s is a great example. You know, it's just going down. uh, But the backwardation was enormous. You know, the interest rates were enormous. So a trend follower is seeing no trend, even though everyone else is thinking, well, the peso is collapsing. Yeah, but you're paying an enormous amount to, to short it. 
right? So if you have markets that are in heavy contango, like energy was in the mid 2000s, everyone's, you know, they're uh, punching you in the face for not being long crude oil as it goes to 150, but the, the annualized contango was 30%. It's no way to make any money. Yeah. So, but if you factor those both into your signal generation process, well, you can get the best of both worlds. And sometimes you get the double sort, like a downtrend in the VIX, where you're getting the, you're getting the contango as a profit center and the downtrend in the prices at the same time. So here's, so uh, yeah, I, I would echo your, your observations there, definitely. And so when, when we examine the relationship between diversified carry and diversified trend, they end up having a reasonably high correlation, right? Like, like on the neighborhood of 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6. Um, so I would certainly that, that argues that um, total return trend explains a meaningful portion of, of carry, right? But a couple of other things I think are interesting, right? One is markets spend a lot of time not trending, right? So what is the definition of carry? It is the return you expect if the price doesn't change, right? So if, you're, if, if, if the drift is zero, then your expected return is the carry, right? So one of the interesting sort of, again, getting back to sort of theoretical um, rationale, one of the reasons I like carry is because it seems theoretically to be the, a perfect complement to trend insofar as when there's a meaningful trend in excessive carry. So there's some sort of endogenous or exogenous shock, right? That's going to, that's creating a major move. Carry is not explaining that that's something else. Um, when there's no major um, shock that's driving a major move in price then carries what pays you, right? It's like you've got random drift around zero. And so it's the carry that ends up being the, a center of gravity that you sort of, you're, you're clipping coupons from the carry while there's no trend. Does that resonate with you at all? Or do you have any alternative views? In, in theory, I would love it if that's the way it actually played out. Um, uh, and it may be on on some level. I'll share with you my experience. So these markets, there's a lot of counterintuitive nonlinear relationships. Um, and when trend followers are collecting a lot of carry, it 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 tends to correspond with some sort of a supply demand imbalance. So let's just rewind one year. Um, you know, I remember at the time having to go short lots and lots, or basically every energy market on the planet in February of 2000. And, and and talking to a lot of my peers in the industry that said, we're not going to go short. The prices are down too much. You know, it's, it's irresponsible to go short crude. It's already down all the way down to $60 a barrel. You know, what's it going to do? Go negative. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I took a lot of heat for saying, yeah, it, technically it can go negative because the, the storage costs can exceed the salvage value of the toxic substance, you know, when the storage facilities fill up. So I'm from Kansas. I know what it's like when storage facilities are full. You know, the marginal cost of storage can go, you know, up in, to infinity because uh, there's just nothing else you can do with the stuff other than dump it on the side of the road and get fined by the government. So, um, the carry in energy, it was a lot like the sugar trade in the eighties when sugar was trading below the cost of production and nobody in their right mind wanted to short it, but that was the greatest trade ever because 
the amount of contango that was built up into it because of the government subsidies allowed you to just keep rolling that position over and over and over again for like a year and a half and ended up being the biggest, one of the greatest trend following trades of all time, even though the price never went down. So the crude oil and, and heating oil and gas oil trade, um, it was the storage cost. It was the carry component, but the carry component, because there was a massive supply demand imbalance at the time is what created that. So, and I see this over and over historically, like I, the best futures education that I think a person can get is to go read the papers by a guy named Holbrook Working. And he's a guy from the 20s, 1920s to the 1940s. And it's the best coverage of how futures markets work, who they were built for, where the risk premiums are, who makes money, who loses money um, that you could possibly read, in my opinion. And that's kind of where I've, you know, got these concepts from. And then I look around and say, you know, well, the carry, I agree. The carry is is a huge possible source of return. I just think that it's 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 integrated and it has a, a kind of a dependent or a causal relationship with trend. Yeah, fair sense? enough. I mean, I, I'd say we have found them to be enormously complementary, but but mm-hmm. it's um, I, I I like that view. So I, I want to make sure that we get to the vision for standpoint because we sort of we we talked about um, trying to give investors what they need but we're not what they want, right? And I think your vision for Standpoint is let's give the investors what they want and some of what they need, right? So so tell me about what motivated that change and um, what, what the vision for Standpoint is. What motivated it? Uh, fatigue? Uh, <laughs> um, so here, here's what happened. I spent, it's my own fault, but I spent most of my life trying to convince people to do something that they weren't already doing uh, and something that would cause psychological stress for them and their investment committee. And that is bring in uncorrelated returns, increase your sharp ratio, lower your portfolio volatility, um, you know, improve your future, get rid of, of catastrophic risks that may or may not happen uh, and have a nice ride. Right. Um, Should we have a moment of, course- of silence for that, for that vision then, or <laughs> is this like a post-mortem for, for, yeah. for this? So I, I tried this and I thought I would be persuasive enough. To, and I was, I was persuasive enough to get a lot of people to do that to the tune of, of, of a lot of money at one point in time, but it didn't work out well for them, right? Because of what you guys already know. And that is that if they do this and it underperforms uh, the S and P 500 or a 60, 40 portfolio for more than X quarters, they're going to get fired. They're going to lose if clients. They get the diversification they paid for. They're going to get pissed off. Yes, exactly. Um, Unless the diversification happens to be your alts are going up while the market's going down, in which case I've got other problems, but you're not in the crosshairs. Yeah, which happens half the time. It just hasn't been the last 10 years. Right. So I, after I left my previous firm, I had to take some time off, non-compete, which is great. Um, taking time off and I I never would have been able to muster up the courage to just shut down all the term, you know, the, the data and sleep past five in the morning and just take time off unless it was due to a non-compete, but I did that. And the clarity of clarity of mind and clarity of thought that I was able to have, I think changed. Um, cause I realized that, um, I look back over the 20 years that I've been in the industry, 23 actually, um, and realized that what these people actually want is what I do with my own money. They don't want pure trend. 
They don't want pure managed futures. Um, they don't want pure anything. What they really want is what I do with my own money, which is a blend of trend equities and, and, and some bonds via the risk-free rate of return. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I'm perfectly positioned and able to run a portfolio for other people that's the same thing that I do with my own money. Uh, and if that's what they want, I also feel that that covers, you know, like there's an overlap between what they need and what they want. There's some overlap. And Standpoint's job is to, is to basically own that piece of real estate and say, look, we're not going to shove stuff down your throat that you don't want. We're definitely not interested in giving you something that you don't need. We're going to find out where those two things overlap. And it just ha- happens to be this multi-asset approach where you take our best ideas with respect to global trend applied to things like energies, grains, softs, livestock, bonds, currencies, uh, and global equity beta, uh, tax efficient, fee efficient, low turnover, global equity beta. You bring those two things together, which is what I do with my own money. Uh, and when I show that to, to, to potential clients, they say, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so it's, it's, it's a heavy dose of what they need and a heavy dose of what they want. So they get a and, lot of sugar with that medicine, right? Well, you know, I've heard that analogy before. Um, I, I'm not a fan because I don't feel like it's, uh, it's sugar. Um, I think that here's, here's my thesis, and I could be wrong on this, is that if I went out and I built pure high vol, super negatively correlated or uncorrelated alts program, which I think I'm qualified to do, um, and I offered it at a really low fee, I could just beat people up and get them to do maybe maybe 5%, maybe. And I'm talking about (laughs) serious career risk, right? Maybe. Uh, uh, Realistically, it's more like between 1% and 3%, right? Mm -hmm. But if I give them the blended approach, 10%, that's that's not out of the the question at all. You know, once you build established trust and credibility uh, and you establish a track record, getting to 10% or even 15, in some cases 20, is not out of the question. But that... Other thing, not a chance. Do you think a lot of that larger allocation has to do with categorization? As in, do you are you able to sell it as an equity alternative rather than a managed future sleeve that you should do between five and ten percent? I'm uncommitted on the classification at this point. I'm not far enough along. My standpoint's only been around for two years. Uh, I'm not far enough along to have a strong opinion there. So I'm kind of relying on the partners and clients to give us feedback. Uh, so far, they've been really happy with the idea of it's just a multi-asset fund. You know, it's just a multi-asset program. It never causes anyone any heartache. It's never in first place, never in last place. Um, it's just kind of where we go when we don't have any other great ideas. And I think it's a great place to be. I'm not trying to win any awards. I'm not trying to win any sprints. I'm trying to, I don't want to be a gladiator. I want to win the, the marathon. And I think this is the right way to do it. How do you get over the, um, in this, I only raise this because you, you raised the point that this is kind of the way you manage your own portfolio, right? So, I mean, full disclosure, I wouldn't touch a long only position in US equities here or even global equities with a fucking 90 foot pole. <laughs> so Tell us how, how do you, really you how do you how do you is are you are you are you actually genuinely bullish 
on on equities here? Like absolutely, or, or how not. does that? Not a chance. Are you kidding but, me? But but enough people are that you think that you need to sort of you need to include that as the base, mm, no. as the base layer. Okay, no, I'm glad I'm what, glad you asked this that. question. That's why I like you guys. You don't pull the punches. You're like, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, come on now. Um, and or bonds either. You know, bond. I mean, I'm not signing up for, for sure. Real yields. Yeah. Out of your mind. Um, so here's how I look at that. Um, yeah, I mean, half my portfolio is going into market cap weighted global equity ETFs, right? Um, I've also got my macro-oriented futures program. And guess what stock indexes are in that program? The exact same indexes that underline those ETFs. So if we go into a brutal, vicious bear market, which will surprise me not at all, um, I expect at some point <laughs> to start layering into short positions in those indexes in the futures. And I'm eternally hopeful that the exposure from those short positions will go a long way towards inoculating the portfolio against that long only, but also give me the ability to not generate taxes or transaction costs or turnover on the long only side of the portfolio. So that is how I explain it to myself and my clients. I'm real curious as to what you think about that. Well, no, we're I mean, kind of the same boat. Do something um, similar. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's, we have, we subadvised a uh, fund in Canada, an ETF in Canada and a fund in the US that is basically the, the best beta we can put together. Includes fixed income, includes equities, and it's, it's a risk parity portfolio. And then you have a systematic long, short global macro that did exactly what you expect it to do, especially this year as bonds are, were getting destroyed the systematic global macro got that position close to zero, if not zero. Okay. So it, it is, it is, I, I also, over the years, we've come to the same conclusion that you need to give people that, that global growth, that beta, that, that uh, belief in humanity while also providing some tactical support when that dream dies momentarily. So, um, yeah, I'm, we're with you 100%. And then you can have, we do have the systematic part completely separate for those poor souls that end up following us and buying into the tribe. But Yeah, I guess the only yeah. difference is, like we would say that I, I am, I am <laughs> equally enthused on a risk-adjusted basis with the prospects for fixed income as I am for equities. So, <laughs> like, I, 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 don't, I don't, I'm more sort of agnostic rather than um you know wanting to put all my eggs in the equity basket and i and i think that there's a there's enough of a probability for some meaningful returns in commodities in certain environments and plus i don't know if you read our um rebalancing premium paper but while the plane goes above me I hope you guys can still hear me but there's i would argue there may be enough of a premium just from rebalancing commodities just because of the massive amount of diversity and the pretty amazing ambient um, volatility that, you know, it, that, that rebalancing premium in commodities may uh, rival the equity risk premium over the long term. So I, mm. I guess that's, that's, that's kind of where we would go. I just, I don't, it's that big bet on equities that look, we've missed out on over the last decade, right? Like we've diversified away from equities and we've been in commodities and we've been in fixed income. And certainly 
lacking concentrated exposure to equities has been has been challenging, not just from a performance standpoint, but from a client satisfaction perspective, right? And we always go back and forth on whether there actually is a long-term tracking error aversion for clients with stocks, or if it's just that there's a massive tracking error right now because stocks are the only um, asset class that have done well, right? And which and like stocks? In which stocks? Yeah, we've exactly. Internally, yeah. is in the, in from 2003 to 2007, nobody wanted to own American equities. Right. It was all about Brazil, Russia, India, China, baby. It was the emerging markets. It was commodities in Canada, commodity stocks, and U.S. was the last thing on Canadians' minds and most of the international community's minds. Americans will always be home country biased, but you know when that tracking error kicks in, it, 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 it tracking error is a variable thing. Right, right now it's Bitcoin. I don't know, so it's always tough to figure out what people want. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. It, it's yeah, a tough. Yeah. It's I a mean, tough game, nonetheless. The, the '70s is a great. I mean, you, you've pointed out the '70s previously, but at the end, at the end of the '70s, 1980, going into 1982, there were not. I'm sure the the enthusiasm around equities or U.S. equities at that point was fairly muted. Wall Street yeah, was. Right. That's where Empty. the phrase equities, equities in Dallas came from. I think it was from Liar's Poker, um, where the worst thing that could happen to you is you get sent to the equities department in Dallas if you work for an investment <laughs> bank. So that's how, un, that's how out of favor equities were in 1983. Yeah. No so, doubt. So let's not – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you had a finishing thought. Sorry. One thing I re- would love to get you guys um, to talk about a little bit um, – and no problem if you don't want to. I just I wanted to share it because I don't think anyone realizes this, is that bonds had a negative real rate of return from 1940 to 1983. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a negative. Right. A 68% yep. real drawdown. Yes. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you saw the video that I did in the bond simulator that I put together that's on the Standpoint website, but I took a lot of heat for that because it was back when, you know, I think the 10-year yield was 80 basis points, or it might have even been 60 or something like that. And bonds are just screaming higher. And um, I, people just aren't it, it look, if something's worked for 40 years, it's 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 bulletproof. Even when the yield now is, you know, 200 basis points below the rate of inflation. How do you deal how with can that? It, how can it not, though? You have you have a whole um, group of individuals who have entered into the workforce in the various positions in the financial services world and have only observed that trend. They've only seen that. That's all that they know. That's all they and know. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, how could you uh, leave what's treated you so well for so long and just all of a sudden say, now is the time that I'm going to shift entirely my viewpoint against all of my observations and experience through my entire career. I mean, that, that's what makes this particular endeavor uh, so hard to be successful at, I think. I mean, it is, uh, you have to be earlier, you have to be before the narrative. I mean, that, that's the other thing that I think trend following systems do is they put you in trades long before there is a narrative. Oftentimes they get you out of those trades long, long before the narrative has actually dissipated, right? The the price is telling you something. And, um, and and so 
you would exit via your rules, uh, but the guardians of the narrative carry on for much longer than the actual uh, price continues. And so if you think yeah. about that in a 40 year time frame with those individuals, it's sort of the same, same story, different fractal. It's a beautiful way of, I, I had a saying a long time ago, I haven't mentioned it in a long time, is that trend following protects you from narratives is what yeah. it does. Yeah. Uh, yep. Narratives are super powerful and super dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and trend following gotta, allows you to just not care and just stop the bleeding and move into stuff that's working long before people tell you it's okay to invest this way. Jason Russell, who's not on here, but you might know Jason from, from past lives, but, um, um, made his bones under Ed Sakota said that, um, and has been trading futures for, you know, God, what, 25 years now. Um, but he said, Ed used to say that trend is the evolution of the story, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you see the story evolve in front of your eyes. You're in it long before, you know, you're in it when it's page 14 news, right? And you're, and you're out of it when it moves from page one news to page three news, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, uh, I like that. Um, what are you, are you doing anything in the crypto space? I'm, I, we got to give the people what they want, right? I mean, we've been talking all. <laughs> That's right. Give them that sugar. What, where, uh, where are you on the, on the crypto side? So yeah, a couple things. Um, I did not add Bitcoin or Ether futures to the portfolio at the end of last year, um, partially because Ether futures didn't exist yet, but um, Bitcoin futures were the 79th most liquid futures market uh, by my calculations, the way I calculated. I don't use notion of I use risk, but you were, and you were, uh, you, your cutoff was a 78th, right? 75th. (laughs) So, um, yeah, there's some politics there, man. Let me tell you. So half my clients are like, don't you dare bring that garbage into the portfolio. And the other half are like, dude, what's your problem? Like, this is the future. Why are you not doing this? Right. And then I got to deal with two boards of directors. I got my corporate board and the mutual fund board. And some of these guys are a hundred years old, you know, so they're like, it's a fraud or it's the future. So I got to navigate all that stuff. But and the SEC what, and we've heard stories about it, the NFA. moment that you, you yeah. up and the, well, sure. And the SEC NFA, the moment that you add it, you're getting an Insta um, visit from Audit. regulators. Yeah. And just for the record, I love the SEC. I support them. Yeah, we love them too. Yeah, we support them all. <laughs> These guys are awesome. And the girls if you're too, listening, you're, yeah. We love you. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll add it. I'll, I'll put it in there next year if it's one of the 75 most liquid futures markets in the world. And I'll just say, hey, look, I'm providing liquidity to hedgers. This is a tiny market. Um, you know what we do is liquidity weighted. So, you know, 80% of the risk premiums we collect are coming from 20% of the most liquid markets. Um, This one's in at the bottom. If it climbs the totem pole, great. If it doesn't, it is what it is. And if that costs me some clients, then it is what it is. Um, But I'm just going to stick, I'm going to stick with my discipline. And that is if there's a futures contract on it, it's because of hedgers. um, If there's open interest there Um, and I'll provide liquidity to them if that's what they want. So that includes ether, beanie babies, whatever. So that um, that's your answer. The other thing I would say is that, so several years ago when I was, um, after I left my previous firm and I had to take a couple of years off, um, you know, I had lots of free time. So I built a trend following system for the crypto enthusiasts in my life. And I know some really wickedly intelligent people, much smarter than me, 
that went to better schools, you know, Stanford that are deep, deep in the crypto space. And they're doing all this analysis. And uh, I kind of challenged them and I said, I'll build you a real simple trend following model and you run it and we'll see who makes more money the model or you and your bullshit with the analysis of what you're doing. Right. So um, I think those guys made more money last year than I've made in my whole life. (laughs) And they're like in their twenties. Yep. Uh, And I don't know if it's from the model I built them. I, I, I suspect it was, but we'll see. I, I don't trade it. So the only thing I do is invest in my own stuff along with the, with the shareholders. So I don't do anything else and that's by design. So I'm just going to have to miss out on any crypto stuff and and I'm I'm okay with that. I think we Gen Xers just have overdeveloped amygdalas. There was something in the water when we, uh, when we came of age, but, and you haven't even been tempted by the, um, by some of the, the pure ARBs, like the um, Bitcoin basis or the, um, uh, you know, some of the OTC stuff? I have been because several smart people have pointed out that there's 10 to 20% potential annualized returns that are pretty close to risk-free, not quite, uh, but risk-free. But I owe Standpoint my full attention. Um, Standpoint's a new, you know, it's, it's less than two years old, so it gets 158% of my attention and that so no the answer is no and and it'll probably be that way for the next several years um good discipline man i like that really early in the in the chat um matt was asking about the the paper that i analogized with bessembender um can you say the name of that paper and whether it's still available um, actually, I, I, I posted a link in the in the YouTube. To it, it. wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't the Black Star uh, trend. Oh, not that paper, one. Though. It I'm was sorry. a different. Yeah. It was a different paper. Yeah, that I hadn't. I gotcha. wasn't familiar with. I actually don't remember the name, but I can look it up real quick. Well, what what Google cues should we should we leave them with so they can go look it up themselves if it's not? I like to say that we're going to leave them in the show notes, but we don't have any, so. <laughs> <laughs> I just say, oh, just put them in the show notes later. Never happening. Yeah, Ma- might as well. Get Matt will probably say. I think Matt. I actually talked to that guy on several different occasions. Um, oh, I'm sure he'll he'll DM you, and yeah. So I, yeah. I wouldn't worry about it if it's not top of mind. Then we'll move on. Mike Harris was asking about your equity trend following model. Mike, go read the the white paper, dude. It's uh, what is it? Trend following on stocks by Blackstar Funds. Eric Crittenden. That, that that one I posted in the in the. Uh, I thought I did. Anyway, is it not the right one? I don't know. I don't see the link anywhere in the. Maybe it's in the it's private a, it's chat. It's way at the top. Really? I don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it. Maybe put it up again. In in YouTube or where are you guys talking about? YouTube. Are you doing it on Twitter? It's on YouTube. It's right under Matt breaking the markets question. I think we've left people with enough breadcrumbs that they can find it. Yeah. yeah Black I star. I yeah. Just just do. Uh, just, oh gosh. What was it? Uh, it with. Uh, does trend following work on stocks? It's on go. the UPenn CIS site, and you have to Google "Does trend following work on stocks?" Black Star, Black Star, most Crittenden, and yeah, it'll come up. Quelly. Nailing it. Beautiful. There's your there's your breadcrumbs. If you want to have some fun, <laughs> go look at the blind taste test video on the Standpoint website. Like, have you guys looked at that? 
No. Not yet, no. I've heard you uh, describe that. You go ahead and just, that's a good story. Go ahead and describe that. That's so, good. It, it was just pure fatigue um, that got me to the point where people telling me that I don't want trend. I don't want managed features. I hate it. It always loses money. It sucks. It's ruined my life. So what I did is I created a blind taste test for people. <laughs> and um, I would mix asset classes together, but I wouldn't label them. It would just be A, B, C, D, and E. And ask people, you know, look at these long series of returns. Is the annualized return, the vol, the drawdown, the correlation with other markets? And what do you think? And in my, and this wasn't scientific, but I've done this a couple hundred times over the years. Um, over well over ninety five percent of the people will choose the combination that's that's uh, managed futures and global equities over everything else. And then I'm a total dick. I I would ask them like, you have to eliminate one completely, right? And 95% of people eliminate the S&P 500. You know, they're like, well, I don't know what that is. Oh, you rub their face in it, eh? I like oh, it. Yeah, That's what just, I like about you. Just brutal. <laughs> so, so, so were these equity lines, just like visual equity lines? Is that what you're I showing? Would, I would do annual calendar returns and then down at the bottom it would have, you can watch the video. It's pretty funny. The yeah, video is kind of a, a simplified version, but I've done this in different ways. Uh, and it was just, I was tired of getting kicked in the face. I'm like, you know what, let's just do this in objective terms and let's see where you really stand. Right. And, um, there were other times where I didn't make a video of this one, but with the high net worth people, I would have, you know, real estate and tech stocks. I would have all this stuff and I would walk them through it and they would build a portfolio and then it would reveal to them what they built. And it was basically the exact opposite of what they did in real life. In real life, their lowest allocation was the highest allocation and vice versa across the board. So I'm like, well, when you're forced to be objective and you're calm and rational and you know what the labels are, you build the exact opposite of what you do in real life. It's pretty scary. How to make friends and, How do you, and influence yeah. people by, yeah. by your criticism. I love it. How do you find putting people's cognitive dissidence is right in their face? <laughs> like we do it we do it all the time I, too man so no I, does find, yeah, I do it a lot my wife doesn't like it. i'm sitting and at i do the it table by myself day. often and people are crying there's crying and <laughs> i'm alone mostly it's rodrigo <laughs> i hit i hit a nerve because you're all talking at the same time so um, i'm sorry all right, all right. there's there's a caveat there, right and that is i go look i know i'm an asshole and you're mad and i put you on the spot and all this other stuff but I just want you to take a look at this thing and you tell me, you know, it's, it's a free country, do what you want. Um, and I don't tell them that they're dumb. I don't tell them they're doing the wrong thing. I just share it with them. And oftentimes I'll frame it in a way of, I do this. And most people are very surprised at the results. And then they look at, you know, what I'm doing and they say, you know, that's actually, um, that makes a lot of sense to me now. So there's a way to be diplomatic, but it's, you're never going to get anywhere unless you get people to confront their cognitive dissonance. Yeah. For the sure. question is, how True. do you do it? You know, you like you can tell your wife she has bad breath in a way that gets you punched in the balls or in a way that gets you patted on the back. That part's up to you. So with clients, it's the same thing. My balls hurt. Men are from Mars. <laughs> women are from Venus by Eric Crittenden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can tell you I've, I haven't figured it out yet because my nether regions are sore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I drink like four times a year, so this is. Uh, oh wow! Right. Okay, well, we're cheers. Cheers. Yeah. That's cheers awesome. To that. <laughs> what are you drinking? Out, but, Looks yeah. like a Guinness. This I have some Guinness actually, but it's a Yeti Stout. Yeah, so a oh, stout. yeah, the Yeti. Yeah, yeah I've, I've nice. heard of the Yeti. Yeah, it's super good. Tastes like chocolate and caramel, and probably beer and alcohol. So, oh, but I, like nice. I said, I drink maybe four times a year. So I start getting too crazy. Just cut this well, thing off. Well, I set yeah. you loose, man. I liked it. I like, I like it. it. 
what you we're do we're cutting is you, you pour, off right now yeah <laughs> you pour that nice bottle or the bottle of guinness into the glass with a nice frothy top and you have a i don't know this is probably going to put me in the wrong bucket but your your seven-year-old says well what's that dad that looks awesome and i'm like it's a milkshake give it a try <laughs> she stuck her finger in that got a whole bunch of foam she was expecting you know obviously a chocolate shake of some kind that a had a finger full uh, of uh, Guinness. That was so they don't. Uh, I don't know. My kids don't yeah, trust. Your, me, but they your don't trust anybody else. Stories are always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look. Let's yeah. let's cut poor Eric free. He's obviously deep in his cups now after one beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> but uh, Eric, this has been. Ab- I was actually. I was telling the guys before because I, I was telling you we, we were uh, we we were swimming before and and having a meeting, but. Um, I was really looking forward to this conversation and, and didn't disappoint and uh, would definitely look forward to doing this again at any time informally or in front of the camera. So really appreciate do a live your blind and, taste test. That's yeah, right. That's right. It's, that's a good one. Here's the Jetty versus Guinness. Hide the name. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks guys. I really appreciate this. I, um, I was going through your website. I mean, I've known about you guys forever, um, but I never found the time to really do a deep dive on, on what you do. And I still haven't done that, but I spent the last couple of days looking at your website. Very, very thorough. Very thorough, very diligent. It's clear that you guys have been doing this for a very long time. So, I and you ask good questions. Um, and I like your skepticism and your courage. Um, it, it's it's kind of rare, guys. So, uh, thank you Feeling for having me on. Man. Thank I you, really appreciate you, it, and I look forward to the next conversation. Amazing. Beautiful. Ever, hey, man, great forward. success on the new venture. Thanks, Absolutely. I appreciate it. All right, we'll chat soon. All right. Take care of your music, Donnie. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.